Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. So they've begun their opposition, and it really begins to ramp up here. In Mark 2, let's read this, uh, verse 18. We're going to read into chapter 3, verse 6. Here's what the scriptures say. The disciples of John, verse 18, and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined, but the new wine must be put into new wineskins. Now it happened as they went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus said to them, I love this, have you never read the Bible? Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests? And he also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, the principle, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, also, also this, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So, booyah, all right? That's actually not in the Greek or anything. I just inserted that. Apologies. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, And he entered the synagogue again. And a man was there who had a withered hand. Notice this, so they watched him closely. They watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, almost at that exact moment, step forward. Then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them, notice this, look at Jesus here. Here's the ways of Jesus. He looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your withered hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. This is the word of the Lord, to which we say, thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning. um, God, we thank you that we don't have to assume your ways. God, we thank you that also we don't have to, or, or we're not stuck without your ways. God, thank you for the gift of Jesus coming to save us to ransom us, to rescue us, and to reveal who you are to us, God. 
And so today, as we have our, our Bibles open, and, and God, we, we have this time of the week. Each week, we have it set aside. And this, this moment in time, God, is an offering to you. This is our worship to you. We're here for you. We're not here to be entertained. We're not here to be wowed by a man or by a message or by an environment. God, we're here for you. Because you've promised that when we gather like this, you're going to meet us in a special way. So Jesus, we invite you here. We invite you to be at the center of this time. And Holy Spirit, we ask for you to speak to us. We invite you here, God. And we ultimately ask you to give us ears to hear what you want to say to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you're reading through Mark 2, verses 18, down into chapter 3, verse 6, and you're seeing the way that these Pharisees are coming against Jesus with fault-finding criticism, what we learn in this passage is the way that Jesus responded. That's the title of the message today. Each week, we're kind of looking at a different aspect of the way of Jesus and though there's a lot of things that Jesus teaches us, especially about his way, and we're going to talk about a couple different things that he mentions, by and large, the big overall concept and the big display of the way of Jesus here in this passage, again, is the way Jesus responded to the constructive, or rather destructive criticism that came his way. Let's back up for a second and just kind of uh, put ourselves in the story here. Jesus at this point in time has a variety of different relationships, as do you and I. Uh, there, there are different kinds of people in his life, and maybe we can categorize them into these five areas. First, Jesus has friends. Hopefully, you have some friends, people who are close to Jesus. Jesus also has, at this point in time, some followers, and sometimes these overlap. Um, I'm not talking about family and foes. I'm talking about friends and followers. Sometimes they overlap, okay? Jesus doesn't only have people that are close to him. He has followers, people who are called to him. In addition to his followers, Jesus also has family. We're going to see more about Jesus' actual biological family in Mark 3. And those are, are those in his life. This is, is there a better definition of family than this? Those who are tied to him. You ever feel tied to your family and your family tied to you? Of course, you should. There's a nice tension in that. Whole another sermon. Jesus also has, in addition to his friends, followers, and family, we're going to see next week more so on this, Jesus has some fans, you know, some followers on his Instagram kind of a thing. You know what I mean? People that are drawn to him. They haven't responded to the call to follow him. Nor have they come close to him and even as family tied themselves to him, but they're drawn to him mostly, mostly because of what he can do for them. Tim Keller says it beautifully um, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. He, he says that religion, religious people find God useful. Christians find God beautiful. That's the difference. We don't come to God because he's useful to us. I could use you, God. Let me use you for this. 
We, we behold all that God is in his beauty, and certainly we see how that benefits our broken lives, but we're drawn to follow him because we see how worth it he is. Well, that's not the fans in, in a lot of the case. They're just finding Jesus useful. And of course, like anything in life that's going well, there's going to be some opposition. For every fan and every friend, there's a foe. And that's what we see here in this passage. Jesus has not only those drawn to him, tied to him, close and called to him, but he also has those who are opposed to him. Those who are his enemies in the positioning of their hearts against who he is and against what he has come to do. And as they come against Jesus, I mean, that's the idea here. I kind of alluded to it earlier. They're not bringing constructive criticism. They're bringing destructive criticism. There's a big difference. Listen, you need, by the way, like, that's, it's really popular today to be like, you know, man, my haters are my motivators, and like, y'all are a bunch of haters. I don't surround myself with haters, okay? I, I emptied my life of the toxic people. Have you ever seen this stuff? This is like really popular today. Big social media kind of message today. Like, I only surround myself with people as awesome as me, is really the idea. And, and really what that can sometimes mean is I don't allow anybody in my life who's going to challenge me, and that's not good. The Bible says that the kisses of an enemy are deceitful, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. One of the reasons why we need to be in community is because we need constructive criticism. We need critics. Loving, helpful friends that can see the areas of our life that God wants to grow, where the gospel can speak into. Now, that's not what's going on here. These aren't constructive critics. These that are, coming, that are coming against Jesus here, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, are destructive critics. Their end goal, as we read it there too at the end, right? Their real intentions were almost magnified and it came to light. They were seeking how, that's the last verse we read there, they sought how they might what? Destroy him. That was their end goal. The Bible tells us that we also have an enemy whose end goal is our destruction, and sometimes, though we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, that enemy will take the form of flesh and blood and bring opposition to what God's doing in our lives. He'll bring real foes. Not that we're in our heart we're enemies toward them, but in their heart they're enemies towards what God's doing in our lives. And that's what Jesus is doing. Now, it's a fact that that's going to happen. Jesus promised if they hated me, they're not going to love you. What we have in Scripture is not just, though, a promise that that's going to happen, but in the way of Jesus, what you have is you have a, a template for how we can respond. And I'm using that word intentionally, even though it can kind of be semantics, because I think that's the third way of how we approach the opposition that comes to us. There's really two options when there's an enemy opposing what God is doing in your life. They're bent on your destruction. You have one, and it can take the form of flesh and blood. Here with Jesus, it does. I think often what we're trying to do is find the balance between these negative tendencies to either retreat in cowardice or to react in our emotion. You ever faced this before? So first and foremost, we don't want to retreat. Jesus doesn't do that in this passage, does he? Why don't your disciples fast? Oh, you're, you're right. I'm so sorry. Guys, stop eating. Get away from those sinners. Peter, put the bread down, all right? They don't retreat in cowardice. They, they don't retreat in the face of, or rather in the name of Christian humility. If you're, if you're a Christian, you're going to retreat. That's not the language at all. In fact, here's what the book of Proverbs says. The book of Proverbs says that the wicked flee when no one even pursues, 
but the righteous are bold as a lion. This has been a theme verse in our household lately for Judah, a young guy. Um, you know, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's the true lion. But we want to raise Judah up to be bold as a lion for his namesake. We want him to represent this kind of courage. So, so when, when opposition comes, we don't retreat. We don't flee and run away because we're scared of confrontation. Like Rex in Toy Story. We don't want to do that. And a lot of us, we're stuck in that default, and we call it humility, but it's cowardice. We've got to face that. Jesus doesn't retreat when he's opposed, nor does Jesus react. <laughs> a lot of you are like, yeah, I never retreat, man. Those haters are my motivators. And whenever they come against me, I rise up against them, they buck, I buck back. We don't see Jesus doing that either, do we? We don't see him reacting, and uh, we don't see him provoked even to react emotionally. Here's what Proverbs says in chapter 25. It says, whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a, broken, a city broken down without walls. The idea there is there's no security or safety. If this is how you navigate confrontation, you're not moving towards a safe place for yourself or anyone else. So... so what do we have in Jesus? Well, we have this perfect balance that he strikes. He doesn't retreat, nor does he react. Instead, we're looking at the way Jesus responds. And that's the goal in our lives as well, that when we are faced with opposition, we're able to, in the power of the Holy Spirit, be like Jesus here, who responds. Now, that said, I want to kind of change gears here, and let's look at the three things that Jesus is responding to in this passage. The Pharisees, they bring three criticisms to Jesus that he responds to. Doesn't react, doesn't retreat, he responds. Uh, it's interesting, there, there's really three categories of criticism, and maybe you and I uh, can relate to these. I don't know if you've ever faced this. The first is a criticism for what uh, Jesus is not doing. Destructive criticism. I'm not talking about helpful, I'm talking about destructive you're not doing this. It's kind of this religious pressure, like everyone else is doing it. Everyone else is posting that picture. If you really care, you'll post it too, okay? Like this kind of criticism that says you're not holy, you're not good because you're not doing this religious expectation. And we see in the passage it's actually directed at Jesus' disciples, but it's really directed at Jesus because they're reflecting him, right? The second criticism, first was about fasting, second is about the Sabbath, Jesus is then criticized for something that he is doing, his disciples. So first, something you're not doing. You should be doing this, it's right. And the next thing is something that you're doing wrong. You're not doing that right on the Sabbath day. That's the second criticism. You're not doing something right. And then the third, this is the, the saddest criticism that they bring to Jesus. He's criticized for something he may do. Everybody criticized, it's like, I didn't do that. Yeah, but you were gonna. How do you know, right? But that's literally, they know the ways of Jesus and they're fault finding. They're waiting for him. They know what he may do. And so they're just sitting, lying and waiting like an adversary, like a lion waiting to devour in criticism. So those are the three criticisms Jesus faced. Something that is not being done, something that is being done, and something that may be done. Those are the three criticisms. Let's look back at them and allow God's word to just uh, speak to us and speak into our lives with these, uh, these uh, stories here. The first criticism, again, over something that's not being done pertains to fasting. The disciples of John and of the Pharisees, 
were fasting. Now we have to stop there because there's a context that Mark wants us to remember. Okay, Mark didn't write the Gospel of Mark to be divided up into a Bible study or chapter and verses. The Gospel of Mark was written initially to be read all the way through like you would watch a movie all the way through. Um, which doesn't happen anymore if you have kids, right? You have to watch it in like a 10-week series, like one film. Have you seen that movie yet? It's like, I'm on part seven. It's like, there's only one part. It's like, yeah, you don't understand. Okay. Um, But the Bible was not meant to be explored like that. It was meant to be read as a literary story that we're following and seeing the connections between the different uh, chapters and the different events. This event here of the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees fasting falls at the same time, Mark, remember, is telling us that Jesus at this moment and his disciples are feasting. They're eating with tax collectors and sinners. They're at the dinner table, (laughs) feasting upon a meal together, celebrating community and each other. It was the first critique the disciples or Jesus received from the Pharisees here in this passage. Why are you eating with them? So it's in that moment that Jesus and his disciples are feasting. The religious leaders look on at the party they're having, the fun they're having, and the good food they're eating. There's nothing worse than seeing good food when you're fasting. And it's at the moment of their feasting, instead of rejoicing with those who are rejoicing, that they go, no, you need to weep with me. I'm fasting. All right? And it's almost like they're, they're drawing attention to their own spirituality. Even though feasting and fasting are both richly biblical spiritual practices. We have a Seder dinner coming up. where you little plug. Look at that. That's perfect. You can come. You could feast unto the Lord. All right? Fasting and feasting. Two, one of the things I love about following Jesus, um, you know, food is central to our culture, central to our city here in Boca. Boca has been getting on the map more and more for its great eateries. Food is also central to babies. You know that? That's true. Right? I've had some. Central to, to your life as a family when you have a baby. Food is central to my heart. Anybody else? Anybody else like a foodie at heart? It's just central. It's so important. All right? Food is also, I would argue, central to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Food. It plays such a central role. Now, here in this context, Because the disciples are feasting and not fasting, the criticism comes against Jesus. They came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now in a second, Jesus is going to give the reason why at this moment in time and why for this season of life, his disciples aren't fasting. He's going to explain that in a second and why they will when he leaves. But it's important to point out just the tone in the heart of the Pharisees here. And their approach, we can see it, we can read right into the passage here, the tone in the heart that the Pharisees had for fasting. Uh, Jesus actually tells a parable about the the tendency of the Pharisees in Luke 18. Uh, It says, Jesus spoke a parable to, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. He's talking about the Pharisees. That they were righteous and they looked down on those who weren't doing the holy things that they were doing, Right? Have you ever fallen into this tent? Don't, don't think about them. You ever done this? We've all, we all have sinfulness in our hearts that causes us to look down on others who aren't as spiritual as we are. I read my Bible every day this week. You know what I'm saying? We can do this too. The Pharisee within us. And Jesus tells a parable about this, that two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself. Look at this prayer. God I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even as this tax collector. 
next to me. Imagine praying that in church on Sunday morning. Lord, I thank you for me. God, the big, we just want to thank you, Lord, that I am me and not them. We just thank you, God, that I am me and not them, this person next to me. I mean, how sad is this prayer? How steeped in your own blindness and self-righteousness can you be? This is the prayer he prays, and then he starts to boast before God of his religiosity and his spirituality. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. So he's boasting in that. And then we see the tax collector standing afar off. The person, by the way, there's no difference here between the tax collector and the Pharisee's need for mercy. We know that, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even if you mask your sinfulness with religion and you guise it in spirituality, the need is still true within. In fact, that's probably the worst place to be because you're neglecting the true need. The tax collector... His sin is on the outside. People know who he is. They know his mistakes. So he's standing afar off. He wouldn't so much as raise his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a prayer. That's called the sinner's prayer, by the way. It's not ten lines long. It's really just this. What do you need to do to be saved? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Give me your grace. I need your grace. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, the point of this parable is this principle here that's displayed ultimately in the Pharisee who goes about spirituality for a self-exalting purpose. That's their purpose behind religious activity. It's to gain spiritual credit, to get points, to be higher up, to level higher than everyone else around them, right? To, to think of themselves as better. And that's the approach that they brought to fasting. It was only required in the Torah for, for a, Drew, a Jew on an annual basis to fast before Yom Kippur. Now, there was other occasions for fasting, whether it was grieving, there were corporate fasts, there was times of repentance, there's a lot of other instances. But the Pharisees had taken something that was commanded to happen once a year, and they made it happen 104 times a year. Twice a week they would fast. And again, it was all about this public image of look how spiritual I am. And that's what they're coming to Jesus with. Jesus is feasting, and this is a great opportunity to point out that they're not, right? Oh, you're eating? Food? Interesting. I'm not, right? Can you see it? Can you see my spirituality? Look how spiritual I am. You remember when Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount? Did you ever see this? In Mark 6, Jesus says, when you fast, so there is an expectation that we're going to do it, so we'll talk about that, but when you fast, don't be like, he doesn't even call them Pharisees, he calls them, don't be like the hypocrites. With a sad, sad countenance, they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Jesus is like, don't be like those guys. Now, let me say this, like, have you noticed this trend, though, if you're around people that fast? I've seen people take this verse way too seriously sometimes, where like you go out to lunch and everyone's ordering, and then you get to that one person, you're like, hey, what are you gonna get? And they're like, nothing. And you're like, why? I'm just, I'm nothing, I'm not gonna eat anything. It's like, you can tell, by the way, you're allowed to say when you're fasting. Did you know that? You're you know that you're allowed to say it? That's not the same thing as being like, I'm not eating, why? Because I'm holy. That's not the same thing, okay? I just wanna get that out there. I've noticed that a lot. It's like, you wanna eat something? Mm -mm. Why not? Just not hungry, <laughs> all right? Okay. Principle stands the same, though. Don't be like the Pharisees. Jesus says, don't be like them. 
when they fast, they like to draw attention to themselves. And here, they're coming to Jesus with a criticism. And they're, they're, they're not so much shining light on Jesus, but they're shining light on Jesus to shine light on themselves and, and put, to put Jesus beneath them. And so they come again to the Lord. They come before Jesus and they ask him, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And I want you to notice how Jesus responds. Look at what he says. This is incredible. Jesus responds and he says, can the friends of the bridegroom fast when the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So certainly Jesus is saying that there is a time and place. He's making a principle there we'll talk about. But Jesus starts in his response by letting the, the, the Pharisees know that his disciples and their relationship to him is not like the relationship of John's disciples to John. The relationship of Jesus' disciples to him is not like the relationship of the Pharisees' disciples to them. Jesus is not just another rabbi in Israel. He's not another master. He's not another popular spiritual teacher with followers. He calls himself here boldly the bridegroom. The bridegroom. Now, every Jew in that moment when they heard Jesus say this knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. This was a title reserved for Yahweh and Yahweh alone in his relationship to Israel. It's Isaiah 54. For the Lord your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. This is how God identified himself to Israel. As the husband to Israel. As the groom to the bride of Israel. In fact, in scripture, anytime Israel is committing idolatry, which is most of the time, anytime, most of the time, God uses language to call out their idolatry um, that is, it, it pictures adultery. So that's the idea in scripture uh, that I, God says, you know, idolatry is, a, is adultery. It's betraying our covenant, going after other gods. So Jesus here, in Mark 2, ident- in his answer, he identifies himself as the bridegroom of the people of God. This is an incredibly bold claim. He's saying, I am God himself in the flesh. Jesus never claimed to be God. Sure he did. That's why they killed him. That's why, that's, they, who are you? Some kind of king? He certainly was. This is God in the flesh. Now, here's something interesting. Jesus says, here's why my disciples aren't fasting. Because the bridegroom is here. He's with them. He's with his friends. This, is, this isn't a time to mourn. In that culture, one of the, one of the practices of fasting was to, was to mourn and to grieve. It's the, disciple, uh, the Pharisees going, we're such sorry sinners. You're looking, you know. Jesus goes, no, no, no. This isn't a time to wallow in sadness. He said, there is a time coming where, where fasting will need to take place. That's our time. We're, we're in fasting time. But at this moment, I just think of, uh, you know, I think of Dan Noss right here. Hey, Dan. What's up, buddy? Dan and Karina just got married last week. Can we celebrate them? Dan loves that I just did that, all right? Got to be a part of their awesome wedding celebration last week, and it was that. It was a celebration. There was no weeping happening. There was actually happy weepy. You know the happy weepy at a wedding? There was a lot of that, but it was a time, and it's hard because when you're doing the wedding, you're not allowed to cry. You just have to be like, oh, dearly beloved, you know? Uh, It was tough. 
But it was a time of celebration. The friends of the bridegroom were there cheering on their guy. And, and, and Jesus is saying the same is true of this moment. The Messiah is here. It's a time to feast. <laughs> it's a time to rejoice. It's a time to celebrate. Now notice what he says, that the days will come, however, when the bridegroom will be taken away. We know those days did come in the life of Jesus. He was crucified. He ascended after resurrecting to the right hand of the Father. And he says, then my disciples will fast in those days. And as I mentioned, these are the days where fasting, let me say, is appropriate. As well as feasting, we rejoice and we celebrate, yet we're in times where Scripture calls us still to fast. You know, there's a day coming in heaven. I'm really, one of the, one of the other reasons why I'm excited about heaven is, is fasting will be no more in heaven. Did you know that? No more fasting in heaven. Wedding celebration forever. Partying, feasting. Yes, you will really eat in heaven, by the way. All right? Uh, but in the time that we're in now, we, we celebrate Jesus both with feasting and with fasting. Um, let's talk about that for a second, fasting. Uh, there are two errors that we want to avoid with fasting. Let's define it first. What is fasting? Why should you fast? Why should I fast in the times we're in now? Uh, fasting can be simply defined as um, refraining from food. Biblical fasting, that's important, is refraining from food for a spiritual purpose. That's why you and I would fast this week, say. To refrain from food, there's abstaining from other things like social media and that stuff. Like, you can call that fasting, but biblical fasting is abstaining from food and sometimes even water for a spiritual purpose. So the, the two errors, there's two like negative kinds of fasting, not negative, but non-biblical fasting is either pharisaical fasting, which is what we looked at already, but there's also just physical fasting, which like, hey, you can intermittent fast your life away. That's great. You know, tone it up. Physical fasting has, I think, some health purposes. I'm not the authority on that. Don't listen to anything I just said. But refraining from food in and of itself doesn't make you someone set on a spiritual purpose. Fasting is actually pretty popular these days, isn't it? Lee and Angela, you guys would know, right? Fasting's popular. It is, isn't it? It's popular. Yeah, thanks, Lee. All right. If you sit on the corners of the front of the room, by the way, you get a lot of attention, okay? Um, you know, it's, just, it's kind of a trend today. Not, you know, I'm fasting, and it's a kind of this health thing. But biblical fasting is deeper than a physical purpose. There's a spiritual purpose to it. Here's three spiritual purposes in the Bible for why you and I should have fasting as a part of our spiritual regiment, our disciplines. Um, first purpose would be spiritual growth. Starving the flesh to feed the spirit. So we want to grow spiritually. One of the biggest obstacles to you and I growing spiritually, our spirit is willing, but what? Our flesh is weak, man. And Galatians says, Paul says, the flesh and the spirit are at war with one another. And each and every day that you and I wake up, we are in the, in the middle of a lot of different battles, spiritual battles, but also personal battles between the calling of the work of the spirit and the desires of the flesh. So when I fast, Romans says, there's a practice in spiritual growth where I'm making no provision for the flesh to fulfill in its lusts. And that's really what we want to do as we grow spiritually is we want to dethrone. Here's the goal of spiritual growth. Dethroning king desire. How many of us know what it's like to serve king desire? 
And that tends to control our decisions. That tends to control our actions. Whatever lusts may rise up, that can serve as an authority in our life. And so the practice of fasting is, I am dethroning King Stomach. I am dethroning King Desire. I am enthroning King Jesus, and I'm serving him. I'm learning to be sacrificial in obedience to the Spirit. Does that make sense? So those hunger pains, it's a good pain. It's a good pain when I fast from a meal or for a day or however long. I would also fast for spiritual insight, another reason. Um, Jesus, I'm hungry for you to speak to me, more hungry than I am for actual physical food. And there's just something about that. I, I think of the book of Acts chapter 13. It says they ministered to the Lord and they fasted. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now set apart to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed, they lay hands on them and sent them away. Fasting, let me say this, fasting should be central to any major decision you're making in life. Fasting ought to be central to any and every major decision you're making in life. I, I, hear, I don't want to hear from my desire, I want to hear from the Holy Spirit. And so, it's, by the way, it's not like a way, it's not like, you know, sometimes it can be thought of as like this manipulator. I got the, I fasted, now I have this special antenna. But the idea is, God, I just want to get all of me out of the way. I want to get all of me out of the way to be able to receive and hear from you. As they fasted, the Holy Spirit said. So spiritual insight. And then lastly, let me say this, spiritual breakthrough. Jesus says simply in Mark chapter 9, we'll get here. Who knows when, but we'll get there, chapter 9. It's there. It's on the horizon. How far is the horizon? Nobody knows, okay? <laughs> Jesus said to them, this kind, the obstacle they were facing, can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. So, so um, Jesus teaches that there's a spiritual battle that we're engaged in. Paul says the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Fasting is one of those weapons that we employ in the spiritual battle to overcome obstacles, to honestly, to see breakthrough in the war. So if there's a sick loved one in your life, pray for them and fast for them. Is there a family member in your life that is not, just, not only that they're not walking with Jesus, but they're running away from Jesus. Fast for them and pray. There are some things that only come by prayer and fasting. Now, I don't want you to hear me say again that if you fast, you have a, manip you have a manipulation tool. Fasting, is, it's not about having a manipulator in your prayer to God, but it is about having an, an intensifier in your fasting is a way to intensify your prayers before God. It's a sign of desperation. All right, that's why we should fast. And the sermon is supposed to be over soon, so let's figure out what we're going to do from here. All right. Jesus goes on to say this. Okay, so that's fasting. The Pharisees are like, "Why aren't they doing?" It? Jesus is like, "They're going to do it. They're going to do it. They're going to be living in Boca, Solus Church. They're going to be a fasting people." Pharisees. Okay. But here's your problem. Back to the Pharisees. Here's the problem with these guys. Jesus says to them, "Here's the heart of the matter." No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. He says, he gives two illustrations for the same principle. He says, also, no one puts new wine into old wineskins, because when that new wine is fermenting, that, that old wineskin is going to expand, and if it's an old wineskin with new wine, it's going to burst. The wine is spilled. It's wasted. The wineskins are ruined, too. The new wine must be put into new wineskins that can sustain and handle the new thing. 
both principles or both pictures here are displaying the same principle that Jesus is trying to share with the Pharisees. The reason why they're in opposition to Jesus is because they want Jesus to fit himself into their old way of religion. Do we see this? Jesus is causing all kinds of problems for the Pharisees. People are going to Jesus instead of the Pharisees. They're, in a sense, threatened by his ministry. And so they want Jesus, Jesus, you can, the healing thing, great. But we want you to fit into, and Jesus makes an incredible statement here. He says, in this statement, he's saying this. First, he's saying, um, I can't fit into your old way because I'm bringing about a whole new way. In fact, Jesus says that he's the fulfillment of the old way. He's like, the old way was a seed that's fulfilled in Jesus, and it blossoms into a whole new way in Jesus, a whole new way of life. Not this religious, like, regulation life where you relate to God based on your behavior, none of that. Jesus comes, he's coming to bring a whole new way. And notice what Jesus says, and his new way, it can't just be added to the old way. Does that make sense? Like putting new wine in an old wineskin like putting a new patch on, on old cloth. Because Jesus' new way is a new way that's not compatible with the old. And this is, I think, helpful for us to remember because I think sometimes even today what we try to do, listen, is we try to bring our oldness to Jesus and add him to it. Jesus, I just, I want to, you know, my life, I just want to add you to my life, like just an addition here, you know. Can I just add you to my way of life? Can I just add you to my... And Jesus is making a principle here. That doesn't work. That's not compatible. In fact, the Bible says this, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things pass away. Behold, all things have become new. This is the Christian faith. The Christian faith says this, you can't add the new of Jesus to your old. Your old has to become new. You've got to be new in Jesus. You've got to become a new wineskin. You've got to be made new from the inside out. This is the gospel. And a lot of people are approaching the Christian faith in this religious additive way where I have my same old life, but I've added church to it. I've added Christian things to it. I've added this thing to it and that thing to it. Here's the question. Have you turned away from the old and embraced the new? Have you allowed Jesus to come in and make you new? That's where the new wine flows. That's where the work of the Spirit flows. His new way isn't compatible with the old. It doesn't work. And he's doing a new thing. It's 11.20. Let's keep going. It says, now it happened that, he went through the grain, that they went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. So now you have another criticism. The disciples are on the Sabbath. God's given the Sabbath as an institute, as a law for Israel to be kept even before the law was given. We see this written to the fabric of the world. God himself takes a day off as a model for us as well. He gives that to his people. Um, Sabbath, that, that practice of rest for the, for the Jews, Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, Shabbat. Uh, what, what Sabbath does for us is it reminds us that we're not God. We can take a day off. It also reminds us that you and I are more than what we produce. A lot of us, our identity is in what we can produce. And, and, and so when you take, if, you, if you take a day off, your identity is shattered. Sabbath says, I am more than what I produce. I'm a son of God. 
I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm a child, I'm a brother, I'm a friend. Um, Sabbath helps us learn how to be human beings in a world of human doings. And so Sabbath is such a great gift that God has given to man. And Jesus talks about that, that, that man wasn't made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made as a gift to the man, as a gift to, to mankind, to keep their bodies from wearing out, to keep families intact, to keep marriages healthy, right? That's the point of Sabbath, to keep you from burning out. The Pharisees had it the other way around. They took something that was a gift, a blessing, God's commands, and they made it a burden. And so here's the, the disciples on the Sabbath day, and they're hungry. They're going through this buffet of a cornfield, and they're picking off the heads of grain. And the Pharisees are looking on, and they say to Jesus, look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? That's not allowed to happen. You can't behave like that on the Sabbath. Keep the rules. Keep the laws. This is what legalism does. <laughs> legalism takes the commands of God, which are meant to be a blessing, and it makes them a burden by adding all these stipulations and laws to them. Why are you doing, you're not supposed to do that, why? Well, it's, it's not our religious tradition. Okay. Okay, I mean, they're hungry, that's what Jesus says. In fact, there's nowhere in the law that, that forbids this kind of behavior. If anything, Deuteronomy permits this. Permits this kind of practice where you're hungry, it's a, whether it's the Sabbath day or not, you're in your neighbor's cornfield, grab that thing off, take a bite. Have some corn. I would cook it, butter, grill would be better, and some foil. But hey, if you just want to dive in, dive in, guys, you know? But of course, the Pharisees love to make things more complicated than they should be. And that's what they're doing here with the disciples. Why are they doing what's not lawful? Um, Jesus says to them, have you never read your Bible, Pharisee? I know you're supposed to have the whole thing memorized. Have you tried reading it? Remember David? He shows an example, a principle here, where God cares ultimately about the heart of the needs of people. God cares about people, not law-keeping. So have you ever read when David, when he was in need and hungry, he and those with him, they went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, this is 1 Samuel, they're hungry, and they took the showbread, which was for the priest. It was for worship. And Jesus makes a point here to, to convict their critical hearts over the way that they're approaching Jesus goes on to say, the Sabbath wasn't made for man, but man was made for the Sabbath. Same kind of idea. Sabbath was meant to be a gift, not a burden. Now, Jesus then says, it's a very interesting statement. He says, therefore, the Son of Man, I love this, is also Lord of the Sabbath. So if that's not enough, how about this? I created the thing. It's my thing. Is that your thing? I am the one who made it for man, Okay. So the conversation's over at this point, which is awesome. Also, mm, it's my thing. <laughs> I love that. Also, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And really, can I say, like, this is the heart with Sabbath. Jesus is Lord, and he's given us the gift of Sabbath. We don't want to make Sabbath Lord. We want to make Jesus Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, then we're going to Sabbath. We're going to rest. We're going to trust him. We're going to give him that gift of time, trusting in what he's created, receiving it as a blessing and not a burden. Chapter 3 says, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. This is where we'll close out here. And now they're going to criticize him for something he may do. He's got a, this man has a withered hand on the Sabbath. And they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, that they might accuse him. This is unbelievable. They're not in awe of the power of God flowing through Jesus' life to heal people. How sad is this? This is, this is incredible. This is also a helpful reminder 
that if you just had another miracle, then you would believe is a big lie. I just need to see more. We need more miracles. We need to see more power. Judas saw a lot of power. The Pharisees, they didn't doubt that there was something from God in this guy. The issue that we see here in this passage isn't what we're seeing with our eyes, but it's what's going on in our hearts. Are we surrendered and submitted to God in our hearts? God, if I just had another miracle, that's the problem with your heart, right? And so we see that displayed. They're they're not in awe of his power. They are sitting back waiting to criticize him for laboring on the Sabbath, just like they did the Pharisees. You know, if if you're plucking grain to eat, you're harvesting. If you're harvesting, you're laboring. If you're laboring, you're working on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus, if you heal a man on the Sabbath, you're laboring. Jesus goes, oh, really? Let me ask you a question. Well, first of all, actually, he does this first. He says to the man, he doesn't even answer them. He's like, mm-hmm. He looks at the man, and he says, I love this. He says, step forward. They're waiting to see what he's going to do. He says to the man, step forward. Then he turns to the, to the Pharisees, and he says, let me ask you, on this lawful, is it lawful on the day that I'm the Lord of? Um, is it okay, let me ask you, to do good, or should I just do evil and neglect the good thing? What, like, what, what do you think? Is the goal to kill or to bring life? And they had nothing to say, which is awesome. So Jesus drops the mic. He walks away. I love this, though. Notice what he does. This is a really in, uh, in, in, insightful verse to the life of Jesus. It says, when he looked around at them with anger, he was grieved by the hardness of their hearts, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. So, isn't it interesting how angry Jesus is here? By the way, the word here for anger is not just like righteous anger or like, mm, it's the word is literally fury. Jesus is furious. Because the very people who are paid to connect people to God are standing between people and God. What's more angering than this? The people that represent God are repulsing people from God. They're making the law the priority rather than the people and the heart of the law. This, this, this is what the, the biggest problem of the day was, and Jesus comes into that mess with a whole new way. And I love this. He says to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out. It says, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. I just love this. Um, Jesus, the best way, by the way, to respond to people who are criticizing you is, the Bible says in 1 Peter, just do good. And you'll... It says in 1 Peter that you'll silence your accusers. They come against you, you can argue at them, or you can do good like Jesus, even on the Sabbath. You do good, and that's the testimony, that's the power of the gospel. Do good when evildoers are arising. And here's Jesus proving that time and time again. I'll invite the worship team to come out. We'll close with a a final song here. And, you know, as I was praying, like, okay, Lord, this is a lot to study here. Jesus is doing a lot of different things, a lot of different conversations, and Certainly there's a theme here about how Jesus responds to what comes to him. And I just had this thought that came into my head, which is, how are we responding to Jesus? Let's think about that for a second. Today in your life, we talked a lot about how Jesus responds to the people that were coming against him today. But if we could close with a central thought, I want you to think about how am I today, right now, responding to Jesus. He's not one, by the way, that comes to you with destructive criticism. Isn't that good news? He comes to you with love, with truth, 
and love to rescue you, to save you, to put you on a better path, on his way. So he calls you out of the old because he has something new. But like the man with a withered hand, isn't it interesting in this story, Jesus could have just healed the guy's hand, right? Hey, your hand is healed. And the guy just goes, whoa, whoa, okay? But Jesus says to this man, isn't this interesting? You have a withered hand. He says, stretch out your hand. The guy's like, which one, the withered one, you know? I've been, bro, I've been doing stretches on this thing for years, man. It hasn't helped. It's still withered. But, but isn't it amazing? Jesus could have, he could have healed this man's hand without any response from him whatsoever. But he invites the man to display faith, to practice faith, to experience for himself who God is when you trust him, when you respond to him, when you say, God, I, I know you can do it, but I'm going to do my part. I'm going I'm to respond to you. I'm going to stretch and that's where the miracle is. And can I just say in your life, in my life today, where do, where do we need to stretch? Where are we praying, God, provi- God, I need community in my life. Maybe you need to stretch out of your comfort zone and join a community group. God, I need this relationship reconciled. Maybe you need to forgive and pursue reconciliation. Where is God calling you to respond and to stretch this morning? Wherever that is, I want to just make a promise to you that comes right from Scripture here. It's always towards a new and better way. Amen. Whenever God says, come to me, I got something new for you. It's out of the old. And and sometimes it's hard to leave the old because of how familiar it is, right? How much of our identity is tied in how we've done things for so long. But the new way of life is where life is truly found.